Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today is the first day of early voting for the Davidson County primary election. That means you can start casting your ballot in person or by mail today. To help inform you as you head to the polls, we've invited all three candidates for district attorney to join us in studio to answer your questions. Stay tuned. But first, the 112th General Assembly is drawing to a close. Yes, we are less than a month away from the end of the legislative session. So let's get a roundup of what's been happening at the Capitol. Here with the details is WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey. Hey, Blaze, how's it going? It's going great. How's it going with you? Doing well, sir. Thank you for being with us. So at the start of the session, tell me, what was the focus? Well, the focus, it seemed like, was changing the education funding formula from a more district-based formula to a more student-based one. Uh, That was at least at the governor's uh, top of his to-do list. But Lately, that hasn't been the focus that lawmakers have had. What's the status of the governor's new education funding formula? Well, it's still moving. It's not that they don't care about it at all. It's just, of course, they have their own bills that they want to carry and see things through. Okay, so sticking with education-related bills, there were some controversial book-banning bills on the docket. What's up with those? Well, for the education, uh, the one that would... Uh, cause issues for librarians. Uh, it's still moving around. It, it, I'm not sure if it'll pass yet, but uh, it's still at least in committees. And then another bill that uh, also has to do with uh, sort of book banning would stop um, any references of LGBTQ lifestyles in schools. That one actually isn't moving anymore. Okay. So as the session wore on, what did the focus shift to? Uh. Well, actually, I just kind of touched on it, but a lot of anti-LGBTQ legislation, uh, abortion restrictions, and also redistricting has sort of lingered around all session long. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about this bill that would have allowed ministers and priests to refuse to sign off on a same-sex marriage. What happened with that one? That one actually just this morning uh, was essentially failed. It was kicked to summer study where they they plan to uh, further research the bill and figure out, you know, what were the issues that would not allow it to pass this year. So uh, that won't be going through. But essentially what was happening with it was they would allow priests to have a different type of marriage. So people could still walk around with a marriage license, except it wouldn't be recognized by the state, which would cause a lot of problems. People actually didn't see that as good for just um, man-to-woman marriages because it could cause issues where you can get married multiple times uh, because it's not recognized by the state. And then also if you die and you try to go get somebody's, uh, you know, their remains or whatnot, that may cause an issue if you're not actually seen as married to that person. Okay. Um, Were there any other issues? I read that there was an issue with an age limit being omitted. Yeah, so that, that actually probably gained more media attention than the other portion, uh, the same-sex portion. So in changing the law, the legislators, I don't know if on purpose they did this, but they did not include the age requirement of 17 or older for a man and woman to get married. 
in the, in the bill. And so it looked as if it opened up a uh, marriage for, for, you know, somebody 50 to 13. Uh, it, it was definitely seen as problematic and it was brought up and then there were amendments that were floated, but I don't think they ever actually got attached to the bill. And like I said this morning, the bill has been kicked to summer study. So none of that, at least at this point, is a worry. Okay, so I want to talk to you about redistricting and these new district maps. Can you give us a breakdown of what happened with redistricting and then tell us where we stand as of now? So re- the latest on redistricting, or at least what happened at first was the biggest news was that Nashville's congressional districts were split up into three. And at first they had, they'd been just one uh, for over 200 years. And the current Democrat that sits in the seat uh, said he no no longer wanted to run uh, because of what had happened. Um, although he, you know, there, there may be other reasons also, but that, that was his main reasoning. And now we have, three districts in Nashville that uh, are very Republican heavy and could allow Nashville to no longer be represented by a Democrat going forward. Now, the latest that the news that has happened is the state Senate dem, um, maps have been challenged and successfully so, at least so far, the maps, uh, the courts have asked that senators redraw those maps. And the senators, um, at least the Tennessee state, has opposed that and appealed it and are waiting to see whether or not the Supreme Court will allow those maps to go forward for the upcoming election. So if the Supreme Court asks them or demands that they redraw these maps, will that change these three new districts that cross over Nashville? No, those see, those are the congressional maps. Those actually, oddly enough, have not been challenged yet, although a lot of people see problems with them. These are the state Senate maps Uh, that would apply to the 33 senators that uh, are in the state. Okay. So what actually passed in this session? What has become law? That is actually a really good question. I'm not exactly privy to everything that has become law at this point, but there are things that are not far from becoming law. And one of them actually, if you don't mind me pivoting, is Delta Mm -hmm. 8 restrictions. And they're actually talking about that today. Also, this afternoon, they'll be talking about it, I believe, at three in the Criminal Justice Committee. It would I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen Delta eight gummies in stores. Um, They have them even at gas stations now, but it's sort of the cousin of CBD. And a lawmaker is looking to essentially try to put uh, restrictions on them to not allow them to be sold uh, at such high quantities of THC. Okay. You know, this 112th General Assembly has been hit with more than just a few scandals. Give me a breakdown of some of the bigger ones. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you wanted to touch on that, because, you know, an issue that it's one of the issues that have been at the forefront that has nothing to do with bills or laws. So it's a federal corruption probe into a kickback scheme that the FBI says was developed by the former House Speaker's aide, Cade Cothran, Um, the former House Speaker, Casada. was apparently getting kickbacks from this business that he and uh, another representative, Robin Smith, who's since pled guilty to wire fraud, has, you know, admitted in court that she was getting kickbacks from this uh, made up. Well, it wasn't it wasn't a made up business, but a, a pretty phony business. They were getting money, state tax dollars, and then using it to give out to uh, legislators as they saw fit that would uh, vote on bills in their favor. 
So how are legislators responding to this? So they've actually passed a, a couple of restrictions that would um, require one that aims directly at this would require a government ID to be uh, given in given when a business is trying to work with the state. Also, any political action committee would have to um, expose all financial documents. So it really just makes sure to track the money and see where it's going so that state tax dollars aren't being you know, used improperly. So as we get close to the end of the session, you know, tell me, what are you really keeping an eye out for in these last few weeks? So really the LGBTQ bills uh, have been moving a lot. One extends the bans on trans women athletes to the collegiate level, and it would create a cause of action for a student who has been deprived of an award uh, due to a trans woman. So if somebody lost a race to a trans woman, they could sue I believe they would probably sue the uh, school. It, it, it isn't clear on exactly who would be at fault for that. And then another is uh, has to do with districts, and it would withhold money if a district does not identify the gender uh, that is assigned on birth of one of their athletes. Okay. Um, it puts teeth, essentially, in a bill that was filed last year banning trans uh, women from competing. All right, you got about 30 seconds. Put your prediction hat on for me. What do you think will be at the top of the agenda for next year's session? For next year's session, it seems uh, like they'll have to come back and try another Texas-style abortion ban because the one this year did not go through, and that's the one that would allow private citizens to sue anyone involved in providing an abortion. What is, what are the, what's the fervor behind that that you've sensed? Uh, well, it's Senator Randy McNally doesn't think the bill is constitutional, at least at this point. And there's already a bill going through that would essentially eliminate uh, abortions if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And he sort of said that he opposed the bill. And since then, it hasn't moved. OK, well, after the session's over, you're going to take a little bit of a break. You've been working hard. I will. But I have to make sure that I let all the citizens know what bills did pass and, and what the new laws are coming. OK, Blaze Ganey is the political reporter for WPLN. Thanks for the update, Blaze. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're bringing you Citizen Nashville, a special segment where we answer your questions and work to hold our public officials accountable. Today, we're joined by the three candidates running for district attorney. Don't go away. This is Nashville. Khalil Colona, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you segments we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions and to hold our officials accountable. Today is the first day of early voting for the Davidson County primary election. You can start casting your ballot in person today at the Howard Office Building in Rutledge Hill, just south of downtown. And as always, you can cast your vote by mail. We'll share our resources on how and where to vote after the show at thisisnashville.org. One of the more high-profile races on the ballot, District Attorney. P. Danielle Nellis and Sarah Beth Myers are vying against incumbent Glenn Funk for the Democratic nomination. Today, we've invited all three in the studio for a roundtable. 
Full disclosure, when I first moved to town and started community engagement for WPLN, I met Danielle Nellis, and we've had a few opportunities to see the city with her. This is my first time meeting our other two candidates, but I'm pleased to have you all here now. Welcome to This is Nashville. So we've been soliciting questions from our fellow community members for the candidates. So without further ado, let's do it. All right, question number one. I'd like to start to give each of you a chance to introduce yourself and then answer this question we heard a lot from our community members. What exactly does a district attorney do? I'll give you each two minutes. Incumbent District Attorney Glenn Funk, let's start with you. Great. My name is Glenn Funk. I've been the district attorney for the last eight years. Before that, I was a criminal defense attorney for 25 years. Before that, I was an assistant district attorney for three and a half years. And before that, I was an assistant public defender for about a year in Memphis. Uh, what does a district attorney do? A district attorney tries to make sure that the community is safe, but also has to make sure that the criminal justice system is fair. That's why one of the hallmarks of my uh, administration has been to make sure that we are serious about the violent crime. We have over a 95% conviction rate on all violent crime. But it's also to make sure that people get the support, the treatment, uh, diversions, sometimes outright dismissals when jail is not the answer. We've been uh, able to successfully lower our jail population by over 50 percent. We lead the nation now in uh, the elimination of mass incarceration at the local level. We've had a tremendous amount of success. When I ran for this office eight years ago, I here a person who was currently a criminal defense attorney ran against two people who were career prosecutors. The term criminal justice reform was not a term in 2014, um, but criminal justice reform was needed in 2014. That's why I ran saying that I knew the difference between a bad person and a good kid in trouble. I touted my experience on both sides of the courtroom, and uh, I, I was elected and I got to work and I've achieved criminal justice reform in some dramatic ways over the last eight years. Thank you. Danielle Nellis. Well, thank you so much. Uh, like you said, my name is P. Danielle Nellis, and I want to answer that question, what does a DA do? The DA on paper is responsible for prosecuting all criminal charges within their jurisdiction. Our jurisdiction here in Nashville is the 20th Judicial District, and because of the size and population, we only cover Davidson County. Other judicial districts cover multiple counties. Here in Nashville, the person of the district attorney is responsible for setting the policies and procedures through which cases are charged and they proceed through the criminal justice or court process. But I think this role is so much more uh, important than that and so much more broad than what we see on paper. The person of the district attorney is responsible for keeping Nashville safe through the setting of policies and procedures, through partnerships that are created and innovating in that space. We know that what we're doing here in Nashville isn't working for anyone. I've gone all across this county, 500 and whatever square miles. And I ask often, do you all believe that what we're doing here in our criminal justice system is working? And no one says yes. So we know that what, uh, what we've been presented with in the office of the district attorney and the policies in place simply aren't working. And that's why I'm running. I've been a defense attorney, I've been a prosecutor, and I've clerked for a criminal court judge with well over a decade of experience. I'm also running because, unfortunately, my family and I have experienced uh, personal loss. My father-in-law, a Venezuelan immigrant, was murdered. My cousin, a black gay man in North Nashville, was murdered in a series of LGBT-targeted homicides. And then in 2017, my church family and I lost several of our Sunday school kids to violent crime. So I've come up with a plan to engage our community, focus on trans, uh, transparency and prevention, and also restoration so that in for every case, we are asking the questions, what does real accountability look like? How do we reduce harm? And how do we work towards healing in our community? 
and we need somebody with innovative ideas and a balanced perspective to move our city forward. Thank you. Sarah Beth Myers. Thank you so much for having me on. Again, I'm Sarah Beth Myers, and I'm running for district attorney because we need criminal justice reform now. And we can't wait for another eight years to see the reform that we've been needing these past eight years. Over the past eight years, our city has grown more dangerous and less equitable. And I have been a local, state, and federal prosecutor right here in Nashville for the past 10 years. The past five, as a federal civil rights prosecutor, I was the civil rights coordinator and the human trafficking coordinator for 32 counties here in the Middle District. Now, what does a DA do? Well, a DA should do these things, should keep our community safe, should make sure that that's done through a lens of equity, and then should make sure that when there is a crime committed, that a person is restored and is bound to be a successful person at the end of that experience. And so my platform is specifically targeted at both safety and equity. The three pillars of my platform are crime prevention, because we have a crime problem here in Nashville, and then civil rights, because we have an equity problem here in our criminal justice system, and then restorative justice, because we want people to be successful after they finish their time and, and serve their time. So from a crime prevention standpoint, what should a DA do? A DA should, in my case, divide the office up into precincts. That's how the data is kept, and assign assistant DAs to neighborhoods to get to know the stakeholders, the businesses, the churches, the nonprofits, and make sure that we're understanding why crime is happening in certain areas so that we can tailor resources and target them to prevent kids from going into the system in the first place. From a civil rights perspective, I'm going to conduct the first civil rights criminal justice audit of Davidson County from arrest to sentencing to see exactly where the disparities are in our system. We can only make systems change once we know that. And finally, create the office's first restorative justice unit to make sure that people are transitioning from incarceration back into the community with resources that they need to be successful. All right. Thank you very much. One of our listeners, Nick Lindemann, told us that he hasn't the foggiest idea of how to differentiate each of you from your opponents. What makes you and your platform different? I'll give you each 60 seconds. Danielle. Oh, I love that question. Um, the difference between me and my opponents is that my opponents are your status quo candidates. What they have both said to you in both of their openings is for the past eight years and for the past decade, they have actively held leadership positions in our criminal justice system focused on the prosecution of crimes. And yet the statistics tell us that what they are doing is not working. I'm the only candidate of the three that has a written policy platform. As I tell people, it's 18 pages of light reading, and it focuses on those four principles that I mentioned. And it has very practical solutions, how we change our pretrial assessment and uh, community partnerships so that we're doing uh, supervision in the community instead of holding people in custody, and we're connecting with the resources they need to address the root causes. It talks about sentencing and how we should change the way we see the cases how we address the cases, and how we don't use mechanisms traditionally that, um, that have a disparate impact. And what we know as the result is that still we have systemic issues and disparities here in our community, and we see that by those who are held in custody still. Thank you. Sarah Beth. So I don't just talk about change, I actually get it done. I founded a nonprofit eight years ago called Advocates for Women's and Kids Equality 
We have drafted and passed nine pieces of state legislation, predominantly within the area of domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking, to get real results and update the law where there are major gaps. A DA should be a policymaker as well because we have the ability to see the system from 30,000 feet and see what needs to be changed. So as your DA, I will be a policymaker and make real systems change. In addition to that, I have professional integrity. I will not break the law while I'm in office. The current DA has broken the law consistently over the past eight years, even as recently as yesterday, when he violated the Little Hatch Act and had his own employees coming in during office time and actually campaigning for him while he was there um, on a DV forum hosted uh, by the Nashville Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence. Uh, That's something that you won't see from me. I will not violate the Little Hatch Act or commit felonies. Thank you. Glenn. I'm the only candidate in this race that has a record to run on, and I'm proud of the record that I've run on. When it comes to innovations, I'm constantly looking for innovations to make sure that Nashville is a safe place to raise a family. Uh, I protect protect our our families. I make sure that we're a safe place to to grow a business. I, I started a restorative justice program along with Judge Calloway in the juvenile court, and after four years, I'm proud to say that program is so successful, it only has a 4% recidivism rate. I started uh, uh, the Behavioral Care Center and trying to eliminate uh, or decriminalize mental health issues. And I'm proud to say that my partnership with Darren Hall and the Sheriff's Department has seen uh, that population after 18 months end up with a recidivism rate of less than 15%. I'm the one that started the Steering Clear program where we're no longer putting people in jail for driver's license, but instead helping them uh, get their driver's licenses back, and saving our city about $50 million in incarceration costs every year. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We've got all three candidates for district attorney in studio with us to answer your questions. Question three. Next up, we've got a lot of questions about the recent Redonda Vaught trial. The Vanderbilt nurse was convicted of criminally negligent homicide and abuse of an impaired adult. We've got this question from Ann Roberts. I am wondering why DA Funk chose to pursue that as a criminal prosecution and what the other candidates would have done in the same situation. Thank you. We've got a minute and a half for each of you. Sarah Beth, let's start with you. Thank you. This is a really important observation because it's not just the Vought case. This is just the latest in a series of misjudgments that we can attribute to the current district attorney. I've made it very clear on the very day of that verdict, I came out with a statement explaining that I will not be prosecuting medical professionals who make even tragic mistakes, which happen every day, for what can what constitutes civil medical malpractice. We have a, regular, a regulatory and administrative process for that in addition to a whole civil side where there's civil medical malpractice claims every day. It is a huge overreach of our criminal justice system to be prosecuting healthcare providers for civil medical malpractice. And while that was a tragedy and my heart goes out to the family, we cannot be doing that because where do you draw the line? You know, how many healthcare professionals are we going to be prosecuting as a result of this? And what I have heard from Mr. Funk is he's doubling down. He's absolutely proud of that prosecution. And I think that that is unacceptable and it is a misuse of office resources. We need to be focusing on intentional violent crime. That is our problem here in Nashville. And this DA has dismissed 87% of domestic violence cases, 65% of gun cases, and 78% of child abuse and neglect cases over the last year. 
And that's according to M&PD data. So our focus needs to shift from prosecuting nurses for unintentional mistakes to prosecuting intentional violent crime. Thank you. Glenn. The victim in that case is Charlene Murphy. She was was a 75-year-old woman who went in to have an MRI. She was supposed to be given some Frised. Instead, Redonda Vaught, through her gross uh, neglect, gave her, went through 18 different stop signs, 18 different different places where she had to either override a system or ignore uh, what her training was. She didn't get a, her, her administration of the drug even verified by the nurse that was on her left elbow at the time. She injected a patient with a, something that was not a relaxer but a paralytic, and even though she knew that it was a paralytic because it was right on the top of the vial, she still injected her with a paralytic and left her to die over a 30-minute period, alone, unable to call out for help. And even if she had been able to call out for help, which she couldn't because she was paralyzed, it wouldn't have been heard because Redonda Vaught had left her alone. When I got that file in from the TBI, I looked at it and it looked like it was obviously gross neglect to me. Uh, but I said, hold on a second. Let's see if w- what the other medical professionals Uh, think about this. We had 30 medical professionals, including expert witnesses, all review it. They all said, yes, this is gross neglect. We then indicted indicted the case. Once we we indicted the case, we took it to a jury trial. A jury that included two medical professionals, one of whom was a nurse, convicted Redonda Vaught, right? Now she has lost her license and cannot get it back because of the conviction. Our job is public safety, and we wanted to make sure that the public was safe and she could not continue to be a nurse. Thank you. Danielle. First and foremost, I want to make sure that in this conversation, we are recognizing that the victim uh, certainly lost their life and that their family is having to walk through a very public grief process. And I want what I say to in no way diminish their grief process. I also don't want to challenge the um authority of a jury to come to a conclusion because we believe that is the most just and fair way to resolve cases is to take them to trial. But in this case, I would not have charged uh, Ms. Vaught with what she was charged with. I do believe this is a classic medical malpractice case. And what I know of the incumbent is, unfortunately, he has shown over and over his uh, choice to make politically motivated decisions. We've seen it with the Andrew Delkey case where he failed to uh, hold Mr. Delkey accountable and give the justice our city deserved and uh, Ms. Hambrick and her family deserved by taking it to trial. The same with the Josh Lippert case uh, and Jacques Clemens prior to that. And so I think what we need to do is put a district attorney in place who will not abuse their discretion and certainly um, look at cases as they are. I do not think Ms. Vaught should have been charged for a medical malpractice issue, um, but it is a what the charges were indicative of a systemic failure in the DA's office, and we must put somebody in place who is able to use their discretion wisely. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear from Dolores Butler, who has lived in Nashville since 1978, about the issues that matter to her in this election. So what, what I would like candidates to know that's running for office is really to take the community serious, not to take anything for granted. There's still too much violence and crime, but people are, you know, it's, it's not so much what we're talking about guns, people buying guns and gun safety. And we do need to talk about prison reform, talk about all of these, all the time that people is really getting that don't match the crime, so to speak. As district attorney, how would your office approach prison reform and the root causes of crime? 60 seconds. Glenn, we'll start with you. All right. Well, first of all, 
my background is both a criminal defense attorney and a prosecutor gave me a perspective uh, that no one can no one at this table can match 25 years as a criminal defense attorney a year as a public defender so I understand uh, how uh, crime impacts families I can fully humanize the victims from my time as an assistant district attorney and my time as district attorney I can also fully fully humanize the folks that are charged with crimes because all these impact not just the victim and the defendant, but also their families. And so what we're trying to do is achieve a proper balance between public safety right, and fairness. And being the district attorney isn't choosing between the two. It's boldly demanding both. And that's why we've brought a balanced approach in my office. As far as making sure that we reach out to the community, I have uh, diversified my office. When I took office, we had one African-American DA, uh, 69 white DAs. Now we are 28% African-American or Hispanic, and we've got 33% of my leadership is is African-American or Hispanic. All right. Thank you. Danielle. Yeah. The way we address our um, uh, over-incarceration and many of the other systemic issues in our criminal justice system is by changing the lens through which we see each case. One of the principles of my policy platform is restoration. Restorative justice is asking the questions, what is accountability? What is harm reduction? What is healing? We have to do that for every case, not just some that we deem appropriate for diversion. Yes, we have a diversion program currently, but only 65 people who have gone through that in juvenile court. So we must not only change our lens, but we have to set up programs that are addressing uh, crimes at their root cause. That includes a neighborhood courts model. I think Nashville is uh, the perfect place to set up that type of restorative practice. I think we also have to expand our pretrial assessment. In doing so, we are, as every each person is coming in contact with the criminal justice system, identifying that root cause and pairing them with community-based resources so that we don't have an over-incarceration. And certainly looking at the fact that 60% of the bodies held in custody right now are still black and brown bodies, which is indicative of a system's failure. Thank you. Sarah Beth. The DA's office should be listening to our community, and that is something that I also hear over and over again. Where is the DA's office? It's reactive. We need to shift that to being proactive and out into the community. That's why I'm restructuring the office to make sure that assistant DA's are assigned to neighborhoods to build those relationships so that we can understand the why of the crime and then target resources to prevent kids from ever going into the system. That's the first step on crime prevention. But then through a lens of equity and civil rights, we have to understand where we are. We have to understand the landscape, and that means doing that first civil rights criminal justice audit. By race, gender, nationality, sexual orientation, and religion, where are those disparities precisely in our system so we can make that systems change? Because predominantly in our jails, there are a disproportionate amount of people of color. As a federal civil rights prosecutor, my victims were incarcerated, and I have seen it firsthand, and I think prison reform and bail reform should be at the top of our agenda. Thank you. We need to take a short break. We've been posting your question to the three Democratic candidates for Davidson County District Attorney, incumbent Glenn Funk, P. Danielle Nellis, and Sarah Beth Myers. We've got more questions on deck, so stay tuned. This is Citizen Nashville. Khalil Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. 
On today's special episode, we're hosting a roundtable discussion with the three district attorney candidates running for the Democratic nomination. Sarah Beth Myers and P. Danielle Nellis are vying against incumbent Glenn Funk in the Davidson County primary election. And today is the first day you can start casting your early vote. We've been soliciting questions from our fellow community members for the candidates. Let's get right back to it. I'd like to start with a question we got from Sheila Clemens Lee, whose son was killed by a police officer in 2017. She asks, quote, when our children are homicide victims, how is it that y'all turn them into suspects instead of victims because their past arrest record has nothing to do with why they were killed? End quote. I want to note that we also got this question from one of our recent guests, Susie McClendon, whose son was murdered in 2017. Two minutes each. Danielle Nellis, I'll start with you. Yes, thank you, uh, Miss Sheila, for that uh, question. It's an excellent question. And I think what happens, uh, and, and we're going to go, I guess, uh, a little more amorphous on this one, but what we see when we are dealing with African-American suspects particularly is how the media often portrays them as violent and starts to put their face out there using mug shots instead of personal shots from, from Facebook or somewhere else. And I saw this very personally uh, when we lost several of our Sunday school kids to violent crime. One of my kids had been arrested and was a juvenile, but at the time he wasn't doing anything wrong. But the shot that the media decided they wanted to find was a picture from his arrest when a quick Google search would have given you one that was more sympathetic. And we certainly understand the long-term implications of portraying these young people uh, in a negative light because they are victims. I think we also in our system really need to wrestle with the fact that there is no black and white answer here, right? Often victims have been defendants and defendants have been victims. Indeed, we know that criminal behavior for the most part is a trauma response. When people are participating in criminal behavior, it is because there are conditions that make it more likely, societal, uh, uh, social determinants that make it more likely for them to come in contact with the criminal justice system. So my goal is to humanize the individuals who are coming before us, be it victims, defendants, even the attorneys who are dealing with the cases and the police officers. We have to put people first in prosecution. And in our processes in court, we've got to expand the spaces and opportunities to do that. We know that right now assistant DAs are given dockets that are hundreds of cases long and they only see the numbers, they only see the names, but they never have the opportunity to really get behind who is listed there as both the victim and defendant. So I think this question really uh, taps on a much larger societal issue, but there are solutions that we can take here in Nashville to move our city forward, and I'm prepared to do so. Thank you. Sarah Beth Myers. Thank you. I'm so sorry for the loss that these families have experienced. And unfortunately, uh, this happens all too often. I've seen it in so many civil rights investigations, going into jails um, where corrections officers are abusing uh, inmates to the point where they have to go to the hospital. These are excessive force federal violations of federal law. And it is important that we understand the relationship between state and federal law enforcement and that we make sure that we are referring cases that need to be investigated by the Department of Justice and the FBI when that occasion calls for it. And it is crucial that those cases be investigated and that we do training to prevent it. I've been doing both of those things for the past five years as an assistant U.S. attorney. 
I've been going into the jails. United States versus Bryant is one of the cases that I'm most proud of, which involved an inmate who a CO strapped to a chair and tased repeatedly for a minute until his flesh looked like raw hamburger meat. Now, when I first tried that case, I got a hung jury. But you know what? Civil rights cases are hard. And sometimes you have to try them twice. So I went back and tried it again with my partner from DOJ. We got convictions on the civil rights cases on both counts. And that is what we have to do is be persistent. I've also been training law enforcement for the past year on violence prevention and on hate crime identification. Those trainings will be mandatory when I'm district attorney because so much of what we need to be focusing on is prevention because all of this is preventable. We just haven't put the effort towards those prevention efforts. So it's past time. We've had eight years. We've seen what that has produced and that is simply not progress. And I am ready to start tomorrow today to go out and continue training law enforcement. We're on board and ready to go, and I will be prosecuting people who are not above the law. The DA is not above the law. Law enforcement's not above the law. All right. Glenn Funk. Sure. When I took office, no officer had been charged on a, on a homicide case, uh, partially and probably because Metro Nashville Police Department had historically investigated itself. When Jacquez Clemens was killed after a traffic stop uh, and a uh, tussle in a parking lot where uh, a gun fell out of his uh, waistband and when he picked it up, he actually pointed it at the officer briefly. The officer very quickly fired right after that. Um, I called in the TBI for the first time to do an independent investigation. The Metro Police Department under Chief Anderson refused to give up the scene and wanted to continue their own, their own investigation caused problems because there was friction between the two agencies. In fact, uh, what Ms. Clemens Lee was talking about is uh, in all the Metro Nashville police reports, the person who was shot was referred to as the suspect and the officer was referred to as the victim. Metro Nashville police reports already had written in them justifiable homicide within five hours of the incident, even though the investigation was going to take several weeks. That's a real problem because if that's the lens through which you are looking at an incident, how can anybody think that that hasn't been a preordained conclusion? At the time that we decided we could not go forward in that case because there was an independent witness and the video showed that he had a gun and the independent witness said, yes, this was actually pointed at the officer very briefly, uh, and we couldn't go forward. We had a press conference where we said the police department should not be writing that the person who was killed is the suspect and the person uh, who's being investigated is the victim. That's not consistent with 21st century policing best practices, and we got that changed. We also got a uh, got a, a memorandum of understanding where now on every officer-involved shooting, the police department uh, just cordons off the scene and the TBI does, it, does its, in, its own independent investigation. These are all steps that have to be made in order to make sure that the system is fair when we're doing these types of investigations. I've made these accomplishments. Thank you. Back in 2020, District Attorney Funk's office announced that it would not prosecute people for having half an ounce or less of marijuana. Our speaker, Sanika Lewis, left us a message saying that they'd like to expand that policy. So maybe legalize weed and people that um, have the marijuana charges for them to get dropped. So I'd like to ask each of you, if elected, how would you approach new and past possession change charges? 60 seconds. Sarah Beth. 
marijuana is simply not an issue. It's not an issue locally. It's not an issue nationally. And, you know, hopefully it will be legal in a few years and this can stop being an issue altogether. So the issue that we have had is that there's targeting, you know, based on using marijuana and uh, targeting to uh, people of color, which we're aware of. There's so many disparities in the system based on that. But we did have the district attorney who said categorically he's not going to prosecute certain categories of cases, including marijuana um, and a number of other things. But by doing that, he got his discretion taken away by the General Assembly. Instead of keeping his head down and not prosecuting certain cases, he got media attention, and now he made it more likely that low-level marijuana cases will be prosecuted. So I'm going to be taking a different tact here than the current uh, district attorney and making sure that I'm not going to violate people's civil rights. I'm just not going to hold a press conference and announce that I'm not categorically going to enforce certain laws. That's dangerous for the community. But um, the ship has sailed on marijuana and it's not going to be prosecuted here. All right. Glenn. Yes. Uh, The prosecution of the arrest and prosecution of marijuana cases does nothing to promote public safety, does nothing to promote, uh, very little to promote public health. In addition, there were tremendous disparate, uh, disparate uh, discrepancies with regards, to, uh, w- with regards to who's being prosecuted, who is being arrested, who is being incarcerated. We worked every year from the time I took office to try to eliminate all incarceration on marijuana. We'd gotten that down to single digits. And two years ago, in an effort to try to make sure that there were some, that the public understood there were meaningful and concrete steps being taken on criminal justice reform. I just went ahead and made the made the announcement that we were no longer going to ever prosecute possession, simple possession of marijuana, less than half an ounce. Uh, I thought that was an important step to say to take. It was an important step to announce. Um, so now there are no disparities when it comes to marijuana prosecution because it doesn't matter whether you're black, you're white, Hispanic, male, female. Uh, that case is not something that we're going to invest our resources in. We're going to save our resources for violent crime. Danielle. We absolutely should not be prosecuting low-level marijuana. That's a part of a national trend, and we understand that and certainly have no uh, intention of reversing that. But I think the issue here was the broad-sweeping statement that was made, the broad-sweeping statement regarding marijuana, the mask mandate, uh, the trans bathroom bill, and the vault case by my other opponent. When we make those statements, we draw the ire of a legislature who already has an interest in Nashville uh, and, and the progressive attempts that we are making at making our city safer. Now, what I will say is we've got to be more effective in the way that we expunge cases. So as people have cases sitting on their records, we know the public doesn't read them as we do in the criminal justice system. So we've got to figure out a way to automate the expungements. And we also have to address addictions. Though marijuana is not our uh, big issue when when it comes to addictions, if somebody does have an addiction problem with other uh, types of uh, narcotics, then we must be able to address addictions as addictions and not criminalize that behavior. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. This hour, we're posing your questions to our three district attorney candidates. Dolores Butler, who we heard from earlier, had a bit more to say about how candidates running for office interact with the community they'll serve. Take a listen. We need community leaders out here, real community leaders, not just running for politics. On the ground, getting your hands dirty and doing something out here in this community. That's what we need. Not just the election cycles. We don't. We don't need to just see you when it, when it's time for election. We need to see you every day in the community. And then when it's time coming to election cycle coming around, people to know who you are, know your face, know your work, and they'll be willing to vote for you to put you in office. But if that don't happen, don't be asking for votes. 
Now, a lot of your job takes place in your office and in the courtroom. How do you plan to show up for the community after the election cycle? One minute each. Start with you, Glenn Funk. Okay, great. Even over these last eight years, uh, I've stayed in the community in public service work, in working with nonprofits, in uh, going to attending houses of worship beyond just my own. I attend Westminster Presbyterian. Um, and, and it is important. Uh, it, it's not just me, but my entire office. It's important for the 70 assistant district attorneys to get out and be engaged in the community, which which we are. We're, we encourage that type of level of community engagement, uh, attending community meetings, participating in, in nonprofits, because we've got to actually, I believe that the criminal justice system can bring the community together. Too, in too many cities, the criminal justice system tends to be a divisive and, and tear a community apart. But I think when Nashville works together, we can make we can have tremendous accomplishments. Danielle Nellis. Thank you. That is a wonderful statement, and I think it's hugely important. I am from Nashville. My family's been here for six or so generations, and I have been in community. I serve as a Sunday school teacher. I've been selected as a fellow to our Nashville bar because of my service in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And indeed, I have recruited the two most diverse classes or three most diverse classes of interns the DA's office had ever seen, which has led to the most diverse hiring. So I'm certainly in the community doing the work. But more important than that, we have to see the entire office in the community. We must align the office with neighborhoods and not just precincts or uh, people who we know uh, closely. We must align with neighborhoods so the neighborhood sees all the people who are in the office, not just those who look like them. I don't know if you've seen, but several of our wonderful ADAs have been out, but it's often those who match the demographics of the community. And we know that tokenism is racism. So we ma- we want to make sure that we are meeting community where they are, that we're meeting the needs of the community, that we're aligning with community, opening up two-way lines of communication. Oh, and I, I should have mentioned I've been a basketball coach uh, and served in that capacity as well. So I'm in community and ready to continue to do the work. Sarah Beth Myers. So visibility is not enough. Just being seen somewhere is simply not enough. And I completely agree with that caller. Just showing up doesn't do it. We need meaningful participation and conversation. That's why I will restructure the office as district attorney to assign assistant DAs to neighborhoods to have quarterly listening sessions in those neighborhoods to hear what the issues are that are adversely affecting the people in that community and how we can help, but not just the DA's office, how we can align with the resources that that community needs. If it's nonprofit resources, if it's coming from a faith community, how can we make sure that we're preventing the crime and solving the issues in those specific locations? Because they look different in all parts of town. I've also served on a number of boards throughout my time in Nashville since 2006, and I founded my own nonprofit. So on the board of Thistle Farms and communities and schools, and then created advocates for women's and kids equality. I walk the walk. You will see me, but not just in location, but meaningfully. All right. So before we go, I'd like to give each of you a chance to make a closing statement. You each have one minute. Danielle. This election is about whether we want to continue with the status quo or we want to make change, real change. 
here in Nashville. We can make history. Certainly, I would be the first woman or person of color elected to the office and the first black DA in the entire state of Tennessee. But it's not just about history. It's about having a vision to move our city forward. We must know all that Nashville is. I love being here on the show, Khalil, because your listeners know all the many issues we face, but also the promise of our amazing future. And I'm ready to take us into that future with transparency, focused on prevention, looking to engage the community, inviting stakeholders to the table in the first 90 days to expand our options for accountability. My diverse background, my balanced perspective, my personal story, bring more experience to the table than either of my can of um, either of the opponents and I am ready to do the work that Nashville needs. Nashville needs a new district attorney and I hope that they will vote for P Daniel Nellis on today or May 3rd. Sarah Beth Nashville deserves better than our current district attorney. We don't need any more scandals. We don't need uh, what we've been experiencing in terms of the uptick in crime and uh, still the lack of uh, transparency and the disparities that are pervasive in our system. I will bring a civil rights perspective to the district attorney's office in a very structured, deliberate way, using data and making sure that we are weeding out the issues at the systems level, not surface change. We deserve more than surface change. Just diversifying an office is a first step, an important one. But I'm talking about systems change. We need to be out in the community in an unprecedented way, and we need to be preventing crime to keep our community safe and to making sure that we're doing that through the lens of civil rights and that we have the person in that position in myself who has the experience at the local, state, and federal level to make real, meaningful criminal justice reform now. We cannot take eight more years of this. We need change and fresh ideas. I hope to earn your vote. Glenn Funk. Thank you. In the last eight years, we've made very real progress in common sense criminal justice reform. It's it's a real and concrete uh, statistic that we've started out in 2013 with 3,151 people every night in jail in in Davidson County. And And last year, it was down to 1,510. That's 1,600 less people in jail. That's 1,600 uh, people that can be home tonight with their families and showing up for work tomorrow. It saved our taxpayers $50 million in incarceration costs. At the same time, we've been focused on violent crime, and we've, and we've been successful in over 96% of our violent crime cases. We Not only that, we've won every big trial, whether it was the Vanderbilt rape case, the the Burnett Chapel Church of Christ mass shooting, the, the Waffle House mass shooting, or two weeks ago, the trial where uh, three people were stabbed outside of Dogwood and two, the Dogwood uh, restaurant and, and, and two of them died. Now, that's significant. We've also been focused on domestic violence, and we've got a program of, with 22 professionals making sure that victims are addressed and that victims are heard, and we're ending up making sure that we have victims that ended up in safer relationships to where they're now survivors and their families are better, safer, and healthier relationships. Thank you all for joining us today. That's incumbent District Attorney Glenn Funk. Also on the show were candidates Sarah Beth Myers and P. Danielle Nellis. Thanks to you all for being here. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow on Maundy, Thursday, we visit Larkspur, one of the only, it's a, the only conversation, convert, 
conservation burial grounds in the country. Sorry about that, y'all. We'll also talk with some of the ordained ministers about the significance of walking with people as we near end of life. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A. of Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our masterminds behind the music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to everybody. This is Nashville. Thank you.